0: Greetings, family. Welcome to a special edition of Your Week with St. Luke's. And as it is October, we are celebrating uh, Disability Employment Awareness Month. And I'm here with two St. Lukers, two members of our family who are gonna introduce themselves right now. Um, uh, Danielle, would you like to start?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Danielle Heider, and I have been a member of St. Luke's for, this is actually, this, this month is my one year anniversary. So, um, and I am involved in worship ministry, singing in the choir, and then I also teach second grade currently um, in our children's ministry once a month as well, so.
0: Thank you for being with us. Um, Ryan, would you like to go next?
2: Yes, so my name is Ryan Arnold, and I have been a part of St. Luke's since last December. Um, I am a candidate for ministry in the United Methodist Church. And I serve in so many ministries. Um, Theater ministry, um, children's ministry where I teach third grade twice a month and um, youth ministry where I lead our sixth grade small group with another volunteer.
0: Cool. Thank you so much also for being with us, Ryan. I think that it's likely that many people don't even know that there's such a thing as disability uh, employment awareness. but And so the three of us kind of got together and had a conversation around some things that maybe we'd like to share with the congregation, share with our family, um, just to kind of consider uh, considering the experiences of others, but also just just to learn new things. Right. What do we mean uh, when we say that someone is disabled?
1: I think, it, so the academic definition of someone with a disability is any physical or mental impairment that interferes with completing mm-hmm. one, or, one or more activities of daily living. Um, but I would like to take that a little bit deeper as well in regards to having that social construct or perspective of it as well. Because um, I think most people identify it as any any body feature that is different from the norm or and then most people also view disability as a defect rather than maybe just another way of or a different way of of doing something.
2: I think that there's a lot of, well, I don't think, I know that there's a lot of variation in disability. Like for me, um, my disability is very visible. Because if you walk up on me, I use a, a power wheelchair for mobility, um, whereas somebody, there is also invisible disabilities. Um, you know, So I think it's um, <clears throat> important when we talk about disability and defining it to also recognize there are different forms, degrees, and types of disability
0: as well. Right. Right, there's all kinds of uh, experiences that people have that you you wouldn't be able to look at them and see, uh, but who would be categorized as disabled? Um, And it's interesting, DJ. I heard you say that uh, one of the textbook definitions or academic definitions of uh, of having a disability, right, uh, would be something that um, that hinders you from performing two or three everyday tasks, right? and it's interesting that that's the that's the definition that people often use but isn't talk about how like societal infrastructure uh defines disability that a person isn't necessarily disabled by what's going on with their body but by how the world is shaped around them did you all have any thoughts about that
2: there's just so much that i have to think about when going to a place that i've never been before like I have to Google the outside of the building and see if there's a there is a way for me to access it. You know, um, like I have to think about when I get inside the building, am I going to be able to use the restroom? Is my chair going to be able to fit? Because it's pretty wide. And there are, I don't know off the top of my head what the bare minimum dimensions are for building to be considered um um hand, accessible i almost said handicapped accessible that's not a word we use um but accessible if something is accessible doesn't necessarily mean it's accessible for my wheelchair like i'm sitting right now in my apartment i can go i can access my restroom i can access my bedroom I can access my kitchen because those things were made towards me. But how the world is shaped around us, there are so many things that prohibit us from having the same points of access or ease of access as a disabled person um, that most able-bodied people do not think about because they're not confronted with the same things.
0: Right. Right, you mentioned that you don't know the exact specifications for um, an establishment to be considered accessible, and it's like you shouldn't have to, right? I mean, it's a, there has, like you said, it has an entire new layer of thinking and planning um, to even be able to just to to live life and to move about the world, right? Um, you had something to say, Danielle.
1: Well, and I think to add on to that, not only just about accessibility, but also just understanding too, that from a from a societal perspective, some some folks will automatically assume that an individual with a disability needs help, and that's not always the case. Um, and then rather than asking, they'll automatically do it for the person, and helping doesn't always. Helping isn't always helpful. And I think a lot of folks don't really recognize that. That's like, for instance, um, I was at a, a restaurant with some friends of mine, and I was wearing a dress. And one of the restaurant managers thought that I needed assistance getting off of um, getting down from the bar stool. But rather than asking me if I needed help, um, she automatically touched me, but she touched me in a personal area. She had touched my private parts and my hips. Rather, in and, and I'm sitting there like, "What are you doing? You don't just go up to some stranger and and touch somebody's um, somebody's body without acknowledging." And and that's the thing is that people often um, objectify disability versus recognizing the humanization of someone with a disability um and i think that's the thing and and then it wasn't until i i actually after that incident i called the restaurant owner and the restaurant owner had and i had a conversation and we talked about what this particular restaurant manager could have done differently and i think that's the other part of it is that we have to be able to be willing to help educate and help teach people and that's not only through our actions and letting it, it's it's out by allowing the people that are around us to see how we operate and see that while there are if there are tasks that we do differently that that's okay mm-hmm. it's questioning that pattern of normality and realizing that god created us all for a purpose and that purpose it's okay to be different it's okay right. And I, and I think one of the things that I've learned over the course of my years is that um, I go to a place of discernment to decide, is this a battle that I need to fight? Or is this a battle where I need to allow God to move through me to help teach the people around me? Um, and so with the incidents of with what happened at the restaurant, that was where I had to set some, some clear boundaries and so forth and help teach that staff, um, but um, it's sad though, because that happens, um, that happens more often than not that people will automatically assume. And their their intentions are good, but essentially though, it's a form of a microaggression and ableism. Yeah. And that's something that we wanna be able to avoid.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sure. I appreciate you sharing that story. I guess I wonder hearing all of what you've said so far um, with it being uh, Disability uh, Employment Awareness Month. Could you could you both share kind of parts of your uh, professional journeys?
1: Sure. So for me, after um, after I graduated from my undergraduate schooling, um, I went to a small uh, private college in North Carolina, and I earned my bachelor's degree in. English and therapeutic horsemanship, I moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I served in the AmeriCorps VISTA for three years and I built a volunteer program there. And then um, I've done a lot of of program development, but I've also have done a lot of advocacy work. The site that I worked at um, when I was serving in the AmeriCorps VISTA was a nonprofit that um, served individuals with disabilities. So God redirected me and so then I ended up going to grad school up in Lexington, Kentucky and earned my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. And I have been a certified rehabilitation counselor now since um, 2014. When I moved to Florida, I initially moved to Florida to work with the the Department of Education's Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, served, served some time serving in the role of vocational rehabilitation counselor. Um, What I found though, working in a system designed to help individuals with disabilities is that um, the systems that are created to supposedly help people with disabilities are often barriers themselves. Mm. And that to me wasn't really authentic to who I, I felt like God had created me to be and what my story was. Because uh, growing up, I was I was one that was breaking the rules of what people were were trying and the, those conformities and those barriers that people were trying to place on me. And I, I did things my own way. Um, and that's how I've been able to get so far is because I have ne- never allowed people's perception of limitations on my life to be an indicator of what those outcomes are going to be you know, it was me and God. Um so um when I decided that working in the government setting wasn't right for me, I've done some workforce development um work with career source during the pandemic. I helped um I helped theme park workers who were furloughed and laid off and helping to get them retrained and placed and I've done training I've really I've done a lot of the full gamut um, but I'm at the at the very core of what I do, though. It's about being able to serve others and being able to help break barriers and create education. So, I think one of the things that I found I'll never forget when I first moved to Florida. Um, one of my one of my colleagues had told me um, that she never knew that a, that a crippled could have a professional job, and I just sat there and I looked at her and I was like, "Wait a second. Um, So, and we had a conversation or so, and then I kind of left it alone. And then I let her see what I was capable of. And it was through, again, that observation of seeing what I can do that helped change her her own perspective of what my abilities are. So, um, but at the end of the day, though, it's about service to others and um, program development.
0: Right, and in that moment, you served as a living witness to her, right? You taught Mm -hmm. her and helped her see Uh, where the limitations of her perspective were. And I've been able to see you uh, in action as well on campus in a moment of crisis, you know? Um, And it is amazing just to see you work and be who you are and who you created to be. Um, Ryan, I wonder about you also, could you share uh, parts of your uh, professional journey?
2: For me, I I have a lot of education. So I... um... Uh, I have a bachelor's in English and theater because I realized very early on that I was going to need a lot of help. Uh, I, I need um, caregivers to help me meet my physical needs that I'm not able to perform myself. So that puts limitations on um, how much money I can make to qualify for a set programs. So I... Just basically decided when I was an undergrad that I was going to do exactly what I wanted to do because if the state was going to pay for it, but then they were going to limit me on what I could actually do, then I was going to get it when I wanted to do. So I had, so I have an undergraduate degree in English and theater. Um, I moved to Florida in 2013 to try to do the Disney College Program because I wanted to work at Disney. Um, I did it for six months. I was not extended, didn't get an offer of part-time or full-time employment, moved back home, was kind of in a place where I was like, what am I going to do with myself? Someone suggested to me that I um, would be a really good social worker because I'm very good at advocating for myself and other people. So I applied for the social work program at the college where I'm from and got in there, did the um, social work master's degree and then decided after completing that, that it was a very taxing program and it was very rewarding, but I needed a break from it. So I moved back to Florida six years ago um, to do the Disney College program after I graduated with my master's. So I have done Three years in theme parks, I've worked at Disney, Universal, and SeaWorld, and then the last five years of my career have been pretty much education. I worked at one school for four years, and then I've worked as a substitute teacher, and I'm still trying to overcome the boundary of um, being able to qualify for that assistance that I need, with care and and make a living wage because right now it's just really hard like i'm not even able to work all five days of the week as a sub because my education level says i'll get paid a really high amount
0: Right. So, There's two interesting things you kind of bring up, Ryan, Um, going back to a point you made, Danielle, about agencies, and organizations that are are supposed to help folks who are disabled actually serving as boundaries and hindrances. We've had uh, a lot of conversations, you and I, Ryan, about how um, because of the service, the the services that you receive uh, put a cap on how much you're actually able, uh, able to make. And still receive services and and, and help from a caregiver. But also you said that you talked about how you're really good at advocating for yourself. And I guess um, for both of you, I guess I want to know, if you don't mind me switching up from kind of some of the things we previously discussed, what are ways, what are strengths that you have that are unique to you that you think that some that you don't think someone would assume are your personal strengths?
1: One of the things that not everybody knows uh, about me and, and my personal experiences is that my faith journey, I think, has really allowed me the opportunity to be able to um, identify and really uh, really question the systems and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give a little context in that, so I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, if Greensboro sounds familiar, um, Greensboro, Um, is not only where the sit-in originated in Mm. the civil rights movement but also the I grew up Quaker so the Quaker meeting that I grew up in the tight-knit community and the Quaker meeting was established in 1754 um, before the Revolutionary War and also um, assisted in during uh, with the Underground Railroad and the Underground Railroad actually went through the property of where our meeting sits. So I grew up in a community that was about social justice and mm-hmm. about questioning systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the influence that that had on my life and that I, I, I'm reluctant to say staking it, but just the encouragement, I guess, really um, to, to push those boundaries. I think it helped me not only, um, learn how to advocate for myself, but it also gave me the ability to help others be able to see their own strengths because Mm -hmm. it's not just about me as a, as a person, but it's how can I help empower somebody else to do better in their own life? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely would say, um, that definitely had a huge influence on my life and then um, with that definitely that optimism and then that just that persistence yeah. I'll never forget when I was um, trying to figure out how to tie my shoes one-handed and um, I literally a friend of mine and I sat um, sat in the the playground for weeks and weeks and trying to figure figure it out how how I'm going to do this simple task. And so, but what I found though through that is anytime I got frustrated in that process, I would walk away and then I would come back to it um to re-engage it. And then I I eventually figured out how to tie my shoe predominantly one-handed. And I think that what taught what that taught me was to never allow an obstacle to frustrate me, but to come back to it and keep pressing on it until. God opens up and has that kind of aha moment.
0: It makes sense to be, Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Just knowing you for the amount of time that I have, definitely that resilience and that justice-seeking spirit are things that are strong with you. Um, Ryan, I I wonder about you. What strengths do you possess that you don't necessarily think someone would assume um, are part of who you are?
2: Um, Well, I, without echoing a lot of what Danielle said, because our stories sound really similar. I came from um, Mississippi and I I grew up in a fundamentalist background. And a lot of those people that I grew up around, they didn't mean um, ill intent by any means. They they weren't intending to be mean or shut me down in any way. But I was kind of being taught by former pastors and even my parents, because I was their first child and they didn't know any better, that I should just accept my disability as what it is and just move on. Like, if I had done that, without getting really emotional, I would still be lying in a bed somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean... (laughs) I, I've always kind of seen God as someone who was on my side and I, I remember in Sunday school <clears throat> when I was younger learning about all the songs like Jesus loves you and learning all the stories where the underdog came out on top like Daniel in the lion's den or Jonah or Esther as the queen she wasn't even invited to speak and she ended up saving our people like but then i would turn around and hear from preachers in the pulpit hellfire and brimstone like you gotta repent or you're going to hell and we didn't have any kind of children's church where at the church where i was growing up so even children were hearing those kind of things and i was like to quote sesame street one of these things is not like the other So, you know, I I always question. I mean, um, I guess my biggest strength is that I question everything. Like if someone tells me something, I don't really assume that it's absolutely true. I'm just like, really? Are you sure about that? Can we kind of dig into that? And, you know, that was one of the things that was so... Comforting to me and drew me to Methodism, like because in um, the Bab the Baptist tradition that I grew up in, like if the Bible said it or the preacher said it, <laughs> you didn't question it. And you know, one of the things that Pastor Jen has said repeatedly throughout the series that we're in right now is literally read the Bible but don't read it literally, you know? And I started doing that as a, at a really young age and just questioning. And I got into a lot of trouble for that, honestly, like in my faith circle. Like I, I just had to realize, probably when I was in early college, I had to realize that in order to survive, the circle that I'm in, I'm just gonna have to like toe the line and not question a lot and one day i will get and that desire to get to where my questions would not only be you know accepted but welcomed and embraced i did whatever i could so i would say that my greatest gift and my greatest strength is to be able to look at a situation and think just because this is how this is right now i don't have to accept it you know so I can try to change it. Even with Danielle learning how to tie her shoes. I mean, I did things like that during my childhood too, you know, just because I wasn't able to accept that I was just going to be disabled and that was just it, you know, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, got into pointed. a lot of trouble, but I'm sure it was a lot of good trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry, were you about to say something Danielle?
1: Well, I was gonna say, um, I, I like the I like with what Ryan had said in regards to questioning. In, in the the Quaker faith, they talk about the process of being seekers. That every day we had the opportunity to seek God and to to learn and discern what that means. And so, um, I think one of the when I was in high school, I played um, basketball. And one of my one of my teammates, her father, um, was a former NBA player. And he um, he saw me playing one day and we really we talked um, we talked quite often and so forth. But he gave me a piece of advice. His name was um, Gene Bates. He played for the Chicago Bulls and also the San Antonio Spurs. Um, but he told me one day he was like, you he was like, there are going to be times in your life because you were different where people are going to question your worth but recognize though that the only person who can make you feel inferior is yourself and that for me changed it in the sense of um recognizing that people's perceptions that's how they define it that's not how i define it and so when um especially as i've as i go through experiences where i have to stand up for myself I recognize that at the end of the day, that I love myself just the way that I am and God created me for a purpose.
0: In our previous conversation, we had discussed the book, um, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, right? Which is about um, seeking justice in faith spaces, right? Uh, For folks with disabilities. Um, could you talk more about that book and kind of the influence or the things that you pulled from it that were helpful for you?
1: Yeah, so um My Body Is Not a Prayer Request is by Dr. Amy Kenny. See if I can. And um it, I found I found out about the book through um a podcast that I was listening to. I really like and I really enjoy um. Reading and listening to, to different podcasts um, related to disability justice, so I came across this book, and I was like, you know, I was like, this is something that I that I want to read, and it talks about just that about the history of um, of disability in, in the community, in the church community, the faith community, um, but it also goes a little bit deeper into the perspective of ableism and also the perspective of sp- how disability is portrayed in the Bible, um, and it gives a different context to it versus just a lot of the um, narratives that you often hear about, or hear, excuse me, about healing and curing. And um, so, uh, Amy does a really good job at um, telling her story, what her perspective has been like, but then offers readers an opportunity to do some self-reflection in regards to their own perceptions of disability, but then also questioning what can we do as a faith community to ensure that we are being inclusive for individuals with disabilities versus the objectification of disability and of people. And I think that's one of the things that in the book, she really contextualized the fact that if we're going to move towards a more inclusive environment and a more welcoming place for for individuals with disabilities, as well as any minority group, we have to move from that process of of, of justification and then talk about how can we make sure that God is fully accessible by providing, um, providing Bibles that, you know, have large trend. And I mean, there's so much that we could do so many simple things um, and not just have a disability ministry. That's not, that's not good enough. And that's not what to me, a disability ministry leans more to that traditional model of objectifying somebody Mm -hmm. versus welcoming somebody. If you're segregating them into their own separate wing, then that's not really, you know, what, Welcoming and being inclusive is about, and that also boils down to um, our littlest of of uh, Saint Lucas as well, um, making sure that our children's ministry um, is providing a curriculum that's going to be inclusive to to everybody, regardless of their ability. So um, she really does a, a great job, um, and so I definitely would highly recommend it. Um, and then. She leads into the perspective to of what I mentioned earlier in regards to helping isn't always helpful.
0: Hearing you speak, you know, we, we've talked a lot about making sure that buildings are accessible, mm-hmm. but you talked about making sure that God is accessible. And I think that's so interesting. I think that um, we very seldom think about the barriers that we put up to God for yeah. different people, right? How we stand is an obstruction to God for people. And when we talk yeah. about justice, I guess uh, for our last question, I wanna ask you all what you all think the next steps for the church are uh, uh, as far as moving towards justice for folks with disabilities.
2: Something that Danielle said um, brought immediately to my mind. And I wanted to make sure that I say before I talk about next steps, I appreciate that St. Luke's does not have like a disabled section. You know what I mean? Dude. Like there's, yeah. there's not a cordoned off space that is, you know, for disabled patrons. There's not a like a a, a pew with a, a a wheelchair symbol on the end like, "Oh, people that use wheelchairs can sit here because that's even been The case in a lot of the churches where I've been, even in the Orlando area, like now, when I come to worship at St. Luke's, there, I mean, I I predominantly worship in the contemporary service. And when I come, uh, Lukey, she asked me, where do you want to sit? I'll move a chair for you. You know, so if I want to sit in the front row, if I want to sit in the back row, if I want to sit in the middle, I can sit there. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's really helpful. Um, as far as what the next steps are, you know, they don't have to be big. Um, just like Danielle was saying, large print vivales. <laughs> I think it would be a lot help, helpful if we had...
0: I want to um, clarify and say...
2: Interpretation.
0: Oh. I want to clarify, and I say, and say that I mean Big C Church, Capital C Church, the church um, universal, yeah, yeah, yeah. not necessarily Saint yeah. Luke itself.
2: Oh, right.
0: That's okay, <laughs> yeah, but still um, good, good answers, and we still need those Yeah, so as well.
2: yeah, I was kind of thinking smaller, but I think even still that like those types of things that I was just mentioning, like not having a, a disabled section. You know, um, just making sure everyone is welcome all the time. Everyone, every church can have larger print Bibles. Every church can have a Bible available that's braille for Mm -hmm. um, patrons that might be blind. Every church can have ASL interpretation, Mm -hmm. you know, Things like that. I think that even for one thing that I always bring up is the need for gender-neutral restrooms, not just for our um, parishioners that might have—well, um, I said parishioners—but not just for congregants that might have um, trans, might be transgender or have gender dysphoria issues. But for accessibility, like if you're like me, a lot of times you need assistance in the restroom. When I was growing up, my mom assisted me in the restroom. So a lot of the time I had to go into a female restroom. Well, in those cases, um, a gender neutral restroom would have helped. You know, things that would make it known that people with disabilities are welcome no matter what space they're in in the church, there's a there's a space for them.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I, huh?
1: I think one of the things um, I, I I agree with Ryan for sure. I think to take it a little bit deeper is that I think that first process, that first step too, is also a step towards reconciliation as well. Yeah. What you think okay. about too? You know, before the ADA was passed. There were a lot of churches who were objecting for the ADA to be passed because they were afraid that they were going to have to um, provide um, and do a lot of like building construction and so forth to be able to accommodate. Um, And I think could you clarify
0: what you mean by the ADA?
1: So the ADA, excuse me, is the Americans with Disabilities Act. So, um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of churches. Really uh, were skeptical of of that because of what it meant in the context of um, of of being able to um, accommodate that and so I think but I think on the flip side of that though is that I think it deterred a lot of um, disability rights advocates and and others from the church because then the ultimate message that it was sending was, well, we're not willing to do this um, for um, for, for individuals with disabilities. And so I think that's kind of the first step is being able to recognize that and to be able to kind of move forward. And then I think the other part of it, um, as Brian was discussing is, um, take those little steps and to also, um, as with any minority group to begin to do some self-reflecting in regards to your own perceptions and recognizing that. you don't have to fear disability, but recognize that it's a part of some people's lives. And I think that that's looking at it from the context of did somebody did somebody in, uh, acquire a disability or is it congenital? Because those are going to be two different perspectives. Whereas if it's somebody who was born with a disability congenital, that's been a part of their entire life. Whereas with somebody who's acquired a disability, they have two different essentially perspectives of what they're like before the um before acquiring and then after and how they adapt um so and then I think the other part of it too is just taking those those steps to dig deeper into what does it really look like to to be inclusive for everybody. And for, and certainly with every church, that's going to be slightly different based off of their population.
0: So I'll, so I'll say again, um, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Danielle, for being willing to share your, your experience and your wisdom. And thank you, everyone who's listened to this podcast for taking a second to hear an experience that might be different from your own, or to listen to someone who has an experience similar to yours, uh, and to gain understanding and faith and encouragement, knowing that uh, if, if Danielle can, can accomplish things that she can, if Ryan can, Uh, if we all can use the things that we've been given and live into who we are, uh, we can live into the, the call that God has for us Uh, till next time. Thanks for listening.